Welcome to season three of The Empty Chair, a podcast from Penn South Africa. I'm your host, Nadia Davids, and I'm the current president of Penn SA. Every year on the 15th of November, Penn centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our eight episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison or a writer who has been curtailed, harassed, detained, or tortured by the state. In this episode, we stand in solidarity with poet, lyricist, and activist Galal al-Bahari. On the 31st of July, 2018, Cairo's military court sentenced al-Bahari to three years of imprisonment for, I quote, insulting the military and spreading false news. On the 5th of September, 2021, he appeared before Supreme State Security Prosecution to face charges of, I quote again, disseminating false news and joining a terrorist group. He remains in arbitrary pre-trial detention. Al-Bahari's family informed Penn International that his health condition has significantly deteriorated due to his imprisonment. Egyptian authorities have expanded the use of pre-trial detention as a tool to silence critics. Penn International and Penn South Africa believe that the charges against Galal al-Bahari violate his right to peacefully express his views, and we call on the Egyptian government for his immediate and unconditional release. Season three of our podcast is in honor of Black History Month, celebrated annually in February in the United States. In this, our first episode, our chair Mandisa Hauhoff interviews Shahan Jones-Rudgalski, who explains the origin of Black History Month and its significance. They discuss Jahan's books, the challenges of relaying often traumatic history to children, centering and acknowledging children's experiences, and they stress how important and life-changing it can be for all children to see themselves represented in literature. Dr. Mandy Sahov completed her PhD at the University of Florida in 2018 on a Fulbright scholarship and currently holds a full-time position as a lecturer at the University of Cape Town. She's a recipient of the National Research Fund's Black Academic Advancement Program for her book Manuscript in Progress, which looks at South African farm narratives. Mandisa's research interests are concentrated around postcolonial theory, black studies and critical race theory, and her teaching centers on African and diasporic literatures. For me, that is the key thing that I take away from this talk, the importance of centering children in the narrative because we often lose them and they're right there. They're right at the heart and what can we learn when we center the child. Jahan Jones-Radgalski is the Acting Public Affairs Officer at the U.S. Consul General in Cape Town. Jahan first came to South Africa as an intern 20 years ago, after which she joined the U.S. Foreign Service and has worked all around the world, including Russia, Venezuela, the Caribbean, Germany and Ghana. She's married and has three kids. She's also a published author and has published seven books and has two more coming out. You have to see yourself in print and in video. Whether you're a black child, a child who uses a wheelchair, a child who's just discovered that you don't fit the gender norm that society might want you to be. If you see yourself in literature and you read about it, it just makes you feel like you belong and like you're normal and it makes sense. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. 
Good afternoon, everyone. We're so excited to have here with us Jahan Jones-Rodkowski. I'm Mandisa Harov, and I am so delighted and honored to be in conversation with you, Jahan. Would you briefly just introduce yourself to our audience so that we can all just hear you in your own voice? Thank you so much, Mandisa. It's a pleasure to be here. So where do I start? Well, 20 years ago, I came to South Africa for the first time. So usually I just start with that and say, I was an intern and I worked in Pretoria and I fell in love with the country and I was like, I have to come back here working. And I went down to Cape Town for the weekend. I loved it. I loved Durban. I loved every place I visited, Limpopo, like every part of the country. And I was like, I have got to get back here. So it took me 20 years, but I am here. I arrived in Cape Town, July 29th, 2021 with my family. I have two daughters and a son. I'm my husband, who's traveling back and forth between the States and South Africa. And so I'm a foreign service officer. I work at the U.S. Consulate General in Cape Town. I am the acting public affairs officer. I joined the foreign service shortly after I was an intern here. For the last 19 years, I've been traveling around the world, working in different countries and experiencing different cultures, trying to represent the U.S. government and U.S. people to the best of my ability. And on the side, I also started writing books. And so I am very happy that I have a couple books published and I have several more on my computer, which I cannot ever lose because I don't have any backups, but um, I have lots of stories. I'm really excited about storytelling. And so I've always been excited about storytelling. When I was a kid, I would make stuff up all the time. And then I realized if I wrote it down, I wouldn't get in trouble. When you just say it, it's a lie. But when you write it down and you say, okay, that was a story, then you don't get in trouble. So I would just make up stories for Facebook. I made up stories about the boys my friends liked and I liked because I liked, you know, I changed every week or so. But I just love storytelling. I love having someone look like they are shocked or they're sad or they're happy or they're falling along on something, either made up or something real that I kind of retold. So that's why I'm here today to talk about, you know, those books in Black History Month, which is very important for all of us. I'm so excited about the fact that you love storytelling and especially that you write stories for children. Thank you so much. You've lived a really rich life. You've lived in various countries. It's so exciting that you're in Cape Town right now and doing fantastic work for the Consulate General. Can you tell us a bit about the story of Black History Month and how you engage this time? Um, just knowing that Carter G. Whitson started it, and I would love to know more what that history is and how it lives now in the American imagination. Yeah, so it started off as Negro History Week, and Carter G. Whitson, who was one of the earlier Black leaders, created Negro History Week in 1926. And so Negro History Week became a chance to think about our history, our past, for African-Americans to know where they came from and know about themselves. And then students at Kent State made it Black History Month. And then in 1976, it became Black History Month when President Gerald Ford officially proclaimed the month of February as a time to remember, honor um, the achievements, the sacrifices, the stories of African-Americans. And sometimes it's called African American History Month, and sometimes it's called Black American History Month. So those are interchangeable. I think I neglected celebrating it when I got older. I mean, when I was younger, it was kind of forced upon us in school, and we always knew this is the time we're going to put on a play about Black leaders. We're going to talk about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. We're going to talk about slavery. And I just think it didn't absorb as well as it should have. 
there are so many books and movies and resources now that they didn't have when I was a kid. I mean, it had more than when my mom was a kid. And so there's no excuse, but I think it was on the surface. And I think there's a chance for our children and people, all of us, to just deep down know so much more now. There's so many more resources. So in that month, I kind of continue doing what I do all the time. But I try to make sure that, you know, when we're doing story time and reading books, that my kids are making sure we're reading books about black leaders, that we're talking about the past. And I know we're going to get into the books a little bit more, but like that was really important when I wrote these books is to make sure I wrote them on a level that children could understand. And which is a lot harder than writing for adults. You know, it's a lot easier to talk about the horrors of slavery when you're talking to an adult. It's harder to talk about it when you want that child to know it was horrible, but not talk about the horrors in the same way. It's just a different way of writing it. You want to engage them, but you don't want to terrify them to the point where they can't sleep or they can't, they don't understand the difference between the person in the picture and the person in their classroom. The answer to your question is, I think I take that time to honor, to remember, to dedicate, and just, you know, make sure that when we do our family movies or when we're reading books that we make sure we remember that this is Black History Month. I also think when you're living overseas, it's a lot easier to kind of forget about some of those things because it's in the curriculum in the U.S. You know you're going to cover it and do it. So I know I'm talking the big talk now, but my oldest kid is 11. And when he was maybe seven or eight, he went to his first black barber shop when we went to the U.S. on vacation. And we're in this room and they have all these pictures of all these black leaders. And I was like, do you know anybody on this wall? And he looked around and this was when President Obama was the president. And he said, uh, oh, there's King Obama. <laughs> it's like, what? President Obama and Martin Luther King and Junior. And I was pointing some of the pictures and I was like, oh, I'm a failure. Like my child doesn't know. And yet he can speak Spanish and, and German and he's been in different countries and he could talk about his experiences abroad. You know, when you're abroad, sometimes you're American. He's not necessarily a black American or African-American. But he couldn't tell me, you know, who a lot of the people were on the wall were. So that's when I started really kind of stepping up my game at home. Thank you. So you've given us so much and some of which I want to ask you, which is, yes, you write children's stories about slavery, about civil rights and key figures in African-American history, such as Harriet Tubman and Booker T. Washington. How did you get started? Why did you get started? What does children's writing allow and make possible? Right. So, I mean, I um, I love writing in general, but I love writing for children more because I feel like their minds are more open sometimes to all creativity and everything. I remember one day, I think my daughter was four and she's like, mommy, look, the trees are dancing and they were swaying, you know, and like we would just walk by the window and say, it's windy outside. But she was just in awe of the fact that trees were dancing. And I was like, oh, you know, that's the, the level. I mean, I love that creativity and the way they see things and think about things. So that's why I've always wanted to write for children. And when you're writing like the different ages, it changes, you know, when you write middle grade books or for that middle age, they still have wonder and awe. And when you write for high school age, secondary school, they still believe in the impossible. They still think they can accomplish everything. And I mean, not that they can't, and we can all accomplish things, but there's a point when you get older where you start thinking your options are more limited than when you're younger. And I feel like that's also how you see the world and how you how you absorb information. That really makes it fun. And so like I've written kind of two different styles of books. The Escape of Robert Smalls is based on true events. And I tried my best to stick to the actual story 
But there's some things I threw in that picture book, like a child fell asleep during the voyage and woke up. I don't know what the kids did. There were kids on the boat, but I don't know what they did. So I kind of added that. So it's kind of like, it's not straight nonfiction. But then the other, the biographies are nonfiction. Nothing is added that wasn't true. There's a fact checker. There are researchers who come back and check everything I write. I have to quote all my sources for every single line that I write. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is like, not for adults, but trust me, 500 words for a child is just as hard as a novel for adults in some ways. Because you you have to kind of stay true to everything you write. And then you have to write it on their level. So some things, you know, emancipation proclamation is a long word. And when you write a book for a kid, most publishers want you to check your, your readability and what age you wrote this. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing a great job. And I check it. It's like eighth grade level or like 13 years old. And I'm writing for like a five-year-old. So I have to go back and change it. So when I wrote like the Emancipation Proclamation book in it, it said, even though slavery ended, some people still treated people bad. And I say, you know, even though the slaves were free, there were still some white people who treated black people bad. And I have white family members, like my husband is white and I have friends that are white and all that kind of stuff. But um, I could not leave it at that because when I read books as a kid, it kind of made it seem like when the slaves were free, everything was hunky-dory and they were all free. And like, you're like, wow, slavery ended centuries ago and black people still complain. So, you know, what happened? But no, like even though slavery ended, there was so much that happened after slavery, even when we got the right to vote. There were so many decades and decades of Jim Crow laws and things put in place to prevent people from voting. So I made sure that I put that in the John Lewis book too and just the other book. So I, I think I've answered your question, but I, I can ramble. I could talk about one thing for like two hours. So. <laughs> Thank you, John. Yes, you answered that really well. And what I love that you also bring forward is that you present children on the boat. We don't actually think of children as having been enslaved. Mm. When we imagine slavery, when we imagine enslavement, Mm -hmm. we seem to actually imagine adults. That's so true. We don't imagine children. And when we imagine the civil rights movement, we don't imagine young people and children, Mm -hmm. which is also plays to the adultist ways in which we don't see children as change makers or as suffering. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And so I love that in your books, you bring that in and you, you, you make relevant the fact that the histories of slavery, the afterlife of slavery affects young people and young people are actually a part of that narrative. They're not outside of it. They're not adjacent to it. It is their story. So I love that. I love that you shared that. You brought up Robert Smalls, and I would love to hear more about the escape of Robert Smalls, a daring voyage out of slavery, which centers somebody who's not often celebrated or perhaps not even known. Why did you choose to write about Robert Smalls, and how did you encounter the story? Okay, thank you. So the publisher for all of these books is Capstone Publishing. And I spoke to an editor there and they wanted to put out a picture book about Robert Smalls. And so we worked together with coming up with kind of these thoughts. And I believe we need to tell the story of slavery, the brutality and the oppression. But there also were a lot of brave people who escaped and people who fought against it and some people who didn't make it but fought and died trying. 
I think it's important the children know that side of the story too. And so I wanted to write this book. I also thought Henry Box Brown, he was the person who mailed himself to freedom, was an amazing story. But someone had just written that book. So Robert Small seemed like a great person to write about. So just, you know, some background for anybody who doesn't know about him. He was a slave. Eventually, one day, he was able to go down to the docks and kind of get a job cleaning boats. And then he ended up going out on the boats, the ships. And then he kind of started learning how to sail a ship by watching. And um, he worked on this one Confederate steamship. And he came up with a plan one day that he was going to steal it. There's some history that says that maybe he got the idea when someone joked that you look like the captain because he put on a hat and he stood a certain kind of way. But he definitely was not like someone who was passing for white. He was brown skin. He did not look like the, the ship's captain. The ship's captain left him on the ship one night with the black crewmen. They weren't officially sailors, although they probably could have sailed the ship. As we see later, he did. All the white sailors left. Some thought he trusted Robert Smalls. Others said he just probably thought a black slave could not sail and would not have the audacity to steal a boat, even if they kind of knew how to do it. In Charleston, North Carolina, where this took place, there were all these sandbars and things under the water that are really challenging for someone who doesn't know how to sail to get around them. And of course, a slave couldn't manage that. But he came up with this plan and he had his children, his wife, everyone waiting some people on the on the ship, he had their families waiting. Yeah, they dared out in this the daring voyage because they did it. Children were in it. And I added what the children probably were doing and thinking because they were on this ship. You know, Harry Tubman, when I was a kid, she was always the person who saved people from slavery and did like the Underground Railroad. But like she was a slave when she was five years old and four years old. I didn't know this until I started my research. Like her job as a six-year-old was to take care of a baby at night. And her job was to rock the baby's cradle and if the baby cried when she fell asleep or the baby cried she would get punished she would get you know she would get beat I can't imagine asking a six-year-old I can't my nine-year-old couldn't do that like I couldn't imagine asking a child to all night long take care of a baby and then during the day do other stuff so that's just amazing so Harry Tubman's story is through her whole life so I think that is important what you said that we don't think about children in slavery you know, some of the movies and books portray them as playing games outside all day, but that that's not the truth. Like they were slaves and they also worked. And children need to know that story about what children used to do. And that's coming back to what you said earlier, when I wrote Harry Tubman and the other books, I talk about how she couldn't play when she wanted to play. She couldn't read books. She couldn't go to school. And so kids get it. Like slavery is no choices. It's not being able to to stay with your mom or go to a place you want to go to, not being able to swim and not being able to do things like this is slavery. That's how you explain it to a child. You talk about the choices that they don't have if if they're a slave. Wow. Thank you, Jahan. I'm just thinking of how we do talk about the over-sexualization of the Black child, but we don't talk about the enslavement. We don't really reckon with the Black child as slave. And I love that you write about Robert Smalls to kind of really give life to the ordinary, everyday people who were all agitating against slavery. And writing about ordinary Black people who were agitating against slavery also invites us to think about there wasn't some starting point, some magical heroic leader who started slave rebellion. It invites us to really reckon with the fact that enslaved folks were always rebelling. And it wasn't that they 
they were waiting to organize around a leader because when we see when we see it as there's one leader that people were organizing around or who was leading kind of like slave struggle or the anti-slave struggle or the abolition struggle then we also have traced that around certain timelines right instead of enslaved people were in constant opposition constantly imagining ways to liberate themselves out of slavery i think that is incredible just broadening that net allows us to also challenge our assumptions about when liberation struggles or movements begin right and it also invites us to constantly take stock of grassroots movements that are happening literally every day all the time so thank you for that i would love to hear an excerpt if you could read for us from robert smalls sure so right what I'm reading, they just kind of made it out of the Confederate area. So he's picked up his family and his friends, and he stole the ship. And so in order to get to the Union area, um, he had to go by all of these Confederate forts. He had to not alarm them because he's, he's sailing the boat. This isn't like a boat now where there's like the captain's area is super covered and protected. And this, you know, this was open. And he pretended to be the captain. He tugged on the whistle. He, he did different things. He saluted and people just let him go. And he comes to the last fort and they notice something's wrong and they try to fire on him, but they're too far away. So now he's coming into the Union territory, which you think is the end of the voyage and they should be happy. But they're also a Confederate warship and they're coming to the Union. So the Union doesn't know there are slaves on the ship. This is the middle of the Civil War. So the Union's thinking, oh, this is about to happen. There's a Civil War fight. You know, they don't have Facebook or TikTok or text messages. They can't warn them. They can't, they don't have a loudspeaker. And so they took down the Confederate flag. They put up a white flag and they hoped that would work, but it was so cloudy and it was foggy and it still wasn't quite daylight. And so this is what's happening on the boat. So they, they come towards this, this Union steamship. The Union warship was called the Onward. And this is what happens. The Onward, a Union warship, sat ahead. The planter was headed directly for it. Aboard the Union ship, Captain John Frederick Nichols called out to his crew, all hands to quarters. He planned to destroy the enemy ship before it destroyed his own. The fog had helped Smalls earlier, but it was not helping now. The morning haze made it difficult for the Union soldiers to see the white flag. They couldn't tell that the men on board the planter were not enemy soldiers. The onward crew could only see that there was a warship headed toward them, and it was coming from enemy territory. Roughly 100 Union soldiers were on the onward, were now awake. They raced to the battle stations. The Union soldiers aimed their cannons toward the planter. They waited for Nichols to give the order. On the planter, Smalls and his crew cried, screamed. They had just made it past the Confederate force, but were about to be killed by the Union Navy. The men, women, and children huddled together on the deck and prayed. Just as Nichols was about to command his crew to attack, he caught a glimpse of the white flag through the fog. He ordered his men to stand down. The wheelman steered the planter alongside the onward. Small shouted, Good morning, sir. I've bought you some good old United States guns, sir. For a moment, the planter crew was frozen. Then it hit them. They were out of danger. Joy broke out among the crew and the passengers. Hallelujah, one woman shouted. A group of men jumped and danced. 
A child who had fallen asleep during the adventure woke up to happy shouts and songs of merriment. Smog looked over the exuberant crew and smiled. His heart beat loudly and proudly. He had done it. Freedom at last. Wow. Thank you so much, Shahan. Uh, what a scene. On the one hand, you're setting a scene where, I mean, this is off the coast of North Carolina. This is the Atlantic, right? And the Atlantic is a site of terror because of the transatlantic slave trade. Yet also you imagining the Atlantic as a site of kind of a liberatory process. It shifts the lens a little bit or, or rather expands it. Because like you named earlier, when we think of Harriet Tubman, we think of the Underground Railroad. When we think of the migration to the north, right, we think of movement on land and we kind of hold the Atlantic as the site of terror and enslavement and never really imagine it as a potential of the liberatory process. And Robert Smalls being on this boat with enslaved people kind of leading and guiding them and steering them towards potential liberation is a very different way of also thinking about the Atlantic. Yet also, you challenge us to think of the Union and the North, right? A lot of people have spoken about that tension that I would rather trust the racism of the South because it's more obvious than the racism of the North because it's masked under liberalism. And on the one hand, the Union was fighting on the side of liberating the enslaved, yet also you hold us in this tension of, are the enslaved people free when they get on the shores of the Union, or are they not? You play with that ambiguity so wonderfully, and I think that that is really, really important for us to sit with. And you do that as well when you write the Emancipation Proclamation. You ask those questions. Was that moment the liberation of the slaves? Was that the final hooray? I love how you play with that ambiguity. So let's move on to that. You write about the inkstand. You turn our attention to the archive in a way that is really interesting in this book. Why do you make that turn? Why is the inkstand your object of choice for analyzing the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation? What questions does it allow you to ask? So I came up with this kind of idea of writing about the inkstand because this book was in partnership. The Emancipation Proclamation was with the Smithsonian. They wanted to have books written that were using living history. So the Smithsonian has, you know, large uh, amount of, of items from the past. And when I first heard this, I know that they had the desk of Abraham Lincoln. And I thought, you know, I hadn't done the research yet, but I thought, oh, the desk would be cool. I could talk about how the desk was a, first a seed and then became a sapling and then became a tree and then became a desk. And I could talk about the craftsman who made the desk and talk about how in this same time as this was happening, President Lincoln was growing. And then I found out, no, no, you need to write about the inkstand that he used. And I honestly didn't know about the inkstand, what it was. But it was very great because I had to find out where it came from. And so it helped me learn a lot about how the document was written. I, th I thought President Lincoln wrote it in the White House, but he actually walked to the telegraph uh, office, which was in the War Department every day. And so that walking back and forth, he met people. The fact that he went to the inkstand there and used that inkstand and wrote it also speaks to how it was written because every day he would pass people 
asking them, when is the war going to end? Seeing people affected by the war, hearing about their loved ones missing, you know, hearing about slavery and different things and knowing what was happening. You know, he wasn't in his room, locked in a room. He was out in public. That helped him, I think, shape his ideas and put things together. So I put that in the book. And I also, as you mentioned, I wanted to make sure kids knew the Emancipation Proclamation was an amazing thing, but it was not just created to free the slaves. And it didn't free all the slaves. It freed the slaves and the Confederacy. It didn't free the slaves who were in the South, but who had pledged allegiance to the Union. It let those states keep their slaves. And that's something that I didn't know as a kid. Like, I think I got the black and white, you know, version, like the slaves are free, hurrah. But no, it was just the slaves in the Confederacy. And it was really created to weaken the Confederacy. Yes, it was also because he didn't agree with slavery. And a lot of people didn't agree with slavery. But it was created to first stop the war. And then we're going to deal with slavery. There were, you know, a lot of different things I learned researching it. And I had to put this into a book again, I think the third to fifth grade age, you know, nine to 12 years old, making sure they could understand these concepts, put it together for them, and also tell them about the ink stand and how this living history exists. And you can go to DC and see it. You can visualize, you can see he dipped the coil in it and he wrote every day and he had to redip it and write. And that document was created using this ink stand. So that, that is how it came about. And, you know, some of the things I had in mind when I wrote it. Wow. You're really illuminating the nuances of histories we kind of like take at face value, right? The Emancipation Proclamation, the very title, kind of speaks of liberation. Yet, if we really pay attention, if we really lean in and ask ourselves rigorous questions around who did it actually free? Who was it meant to free? What was it actually intending to do? Then we can arrive at these answers of like, it was an economic gesture on the one hand, it was an attempt to weaken the Confederacy and end the war and not necessarily slavery. And that slavery is kind of collateral, right? Uh, in a larger argument about war and economy in the Americas. And this is also why it is important that we do teach race theory and history in the classroom. And if we cannot do it in the classroom, that we read books and we invest in literature that does allow us into these nuances. I love that you articulate them so beautifully. I do want to hear a little bit about your writing about John Lewis. What did you learn about Senator John Lewis that fascinated and surprised you in the process of working on your book, John Lewis, Get to Know the Statement Who Marched for Civil Rights? And I mean, John Lewis is very much in our contemporary history. So you're writing about this contemporary leader. What was it about him? you wanted to write about him and what is it that you might have come across in his life that might be important for children to know and for us to know as your audience today. John Lewis was still alive when I wrote this book. He was a living legend. He was in Congress still. I didn't know him, but I knew people who were at Congress who were working there and people could still see him. And I was reading his autobiographies and his biographies. So it's so great to write a book about a person who's written their own autobiography because it's a lot easier to know what they think about it, to see the videos of them talking, to see them online, to go to their Facebook page and their website. So it was very easy to amass information about him because he, he was alive at that point. 
I think the thing that I didn't know about John Lewis was when I was a kid, I knew that there were bus boycotts. And I knew that there were boycotts at the counters when people weren't allowed to eat lunch at places. But what I didn't know was that the Freedom Riders purposely went into areas where they would get beat up. Like I knew they were beat up. And I knew they went into areas where blacks weren't allowed or they rode in the white section where blacks weren't allowed. But I thought it was more of a, I need to go to here and I'm going to sit in the white section. But this was like, where can we go where we can have the most damage put upon us so people can see the horrific tragedies, the things that people go through, the violence and the ways we are treated. And then maybe people will want to change. You know, with the power of television, people could see what was happening, this made people stand up and say, this has got to stop because it's really easy to think civil rights issues don't matter or aren't happening when you live in a town that's integrated, when you can go somewhere and you don't see people mistreated. But if you are in these areas of the U.S. where people were being mistreated, the buses weren't integrated, where if you cross the line, you could be killed. Like if you live there, you knew the story. But if you didn't live there, then you didn't know. So so they purposely went into areas where they could possibly die. They purposely went into areas where people were going to mistreat them and beat them. And I think that was something that I don't think was ever really explained to me as a kid. And I don't think I did enough research on my own to figure it out as an adult until I really did the research on this book. These things didn't just happen. They didn't just happen. And then, you know, we were all freed. They purposely put themselves in harm's way so that in the future, people could have a better life. Yeah, wow. That's really important to know. That intentional resistance at the risk of harm in order to point out a violence that must end. That's really wonderful. And it's also really wonderful to write about living legends. I'd be curious to know whom you're thinking of writing about next. Well, actually, I just finished two biographies for children one on Vice President Kamala Harris and one on Amanda Gorman. Those were tough because Amanda Gorman is so young. And so there are a lot of books written about her. So I went through every single interview she's ever done and like picked bits and pieces out of it. Vice President Kamala Harris was hard too because her whole life are words that are too big for a kid's book. Like prosecutor general, attorney general, you know, because when I was writing it, I had to explain what she did and what she was and everything she's done, but say it because it was for a second grade level, like a six-year-old, seven-year-old trying to write a book for a person who's just starting to read without using attorney general, but explaining what an attorney general does. So that was, that was a little challenging, but they both were a lot of fun and I can't wait to see them out in print. This is so exciting. Oh, I also love that you're writing about Amanda Gorman and that like legends don't have to be old people. Yeah, you can be in your 20s and have a book written about you. You're quite amazing. We want, we want people to learn and learn her story and to know they can because she has. And so that doesn't have to wait for her to become president. We'll do it now. And then when she becomes president, we will have had that book to look at. That's absolutely fantastic. I know you're also very interested in diversity, right? In ensuring that people of color, black children can see themselves in literature, can see themselves represented in writing. And um, you do that very well with your books that we've just discussed, but you also write graphic novels where you like turn main characters in classical fairy tales such as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or Princess and the Pea, the main protagonist into black characters. I mean, I personally love Brandy as Cinderella and 
Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother in Cinderella and Whoopi Goldberg as the mother of the prince, that blew my mind. Just the idea of a black Snow White is already exciting. And I appreciate those kinds of shifts. Why is it important for you that children see themselves in literature? And why fairy tales? You have to see yourself in print and in video. Whether you're a black child, a child who uses a wheelchair, a child who's just discovered that you don't fit the gender norm that society might want you to be. If you see yourself in literature and you read about it, it just makes you feel like you belong and like you're normal and it makes sense. I was given this opportunity to write those books and, you know, I wasn't told make Snow White black, but I was told to rewrite them. And so I travel a lot. I like the outdoors. Snow White became this black girl. And I was like, I told the illustrator, I want her to have a huge, massive afro, very curly hair, you know, princess in the pea. I want the princess to be a princess from Ghana. And I want the other princesses to be all from different countries, you know, and, and I went back and forth with the illustrators to make sure that, you know, I wanted to make sure that everything made sense and looked right. And so I think at one point, one of the bad people, the stepmother and the Snow White had like dreadlocks. And I was like, nope, Mm-mm. When I was a kid, dreadlocks always was evil. If you ever saw someone in a, in a book, they had braids or dreadlocks. And I was like, she can have a long weave. She can have curly. I don't care what she has, but no dreadlocks. I mean, it's the one thing to be in literature. It's nothing to misrepresent someone and make it look like, you know, all the bad people are dark skin. All the people who are good are blonde and blue eyes. And so, you know, that's really tough. I and mean, I had experience with my middle child. She was four years old. She was given a shirt where the little girl on the cover was blonde and had blue eyes. And she's four years old. And I, I noticed it as soon as like she got it, but I didn't say anything. It's like, she's four years old. She doesn't care. She's just a shirt. And she said to me, they really like this little girl. She's really pretty. They like her a lot. And then the way she said it, I was like, oh, you're also very pretty. But you know, this little girl in this country, actually a lot of little girls look like that. And I like researched it and showed her, see, look, these people look like that in that country. Cause someone had travel. And I was like, she gets it. And I bought her a book the next day with a little black girl who was a princess. And there weren't a lot of them at that time. There are more now, but I am very conscious about that. I have an 18-month-old. There's a book called, she's this curly book, and she always wants to read it. Like, she she sees that book. She sees the girls with curly hair and braids, you know, and that is what her sisters look like. She sees it as me, and she wants to read it because she likes that book. She also likes Baby Shark. Um, But, you know, the point is, you know, like when I was a kid, there was nothing like that. There were no books like that. And it's not just for us. It's for other people who aren't like that. Because I remember my first time traveling overseas and someone asked me about the ghettos in America. And at first I thought it was just like a random question. And then it was like, you know, how long has your mom been a prostitute? And I was like, wait, is it what? And like your dad on drugs. I was like, my dad has a PhD. He owns a gym. My mom has a master's degree. She's a school board administrator. Like, what are you talking about? And they were like, oh, well, you know, I know African-Americans in America are very, um, you know, poor. And and this person had only seen two movies, Boys in the Hood and New Jack City. Uh, And they had never seen a black person who had been to college and regular life and stuff like that. Like they had the only in their minds thought black people were on drugs in America and very poor and oppressed So, you know, it also helps that my kids see books where there are Asian characters in their book who are just going to school and having fun with other characters so that they cannot be a book where the only Asian character they ever see is a Kung Fu artist or karate or, you know, whatever. You know, it cannot be that the only kid in their book who is in a wheelchair is like being picked on. No, that kid needs to be solving the mystery 
or winning the award and the lesbian in the book needs to be going to school or doing something normal or on the cheerleading team or on the chess club. Like it cannot be that we only know these tiny, minute things that people think they know about. So that's why I feel it's really important to have diverse characters in a book. It's for that diverse child to see themselves and to know I can solve a mystery. I can get the boy. When I was a young adult, I remember every single book, the boy always ran his fingers to the girl's hair before he kissed her. And I was like, I'm never gonna be kissed. Cause like, even when my hair is straight, you can't really run your fingers through it. And so I was like, oh, I'm never gonna have a boyfriend. So I get my hair straightened up for him to run his fingers through my hair. And I mean, that's probably like 13, 14 when I had this mindset. But like, that is true because there, there weren't books where the girl had a twist out. Now there are. And now there are books where the girls have twist outs and afros. And my daughter read a book about this girl going to a pool party and she was afraid to get her hair wet because she just got it done. And then she got it wet. And then her mom was like, that's okay. You know, you know, let your hair be free. And, you know, like that's a story that wasn't told when I was a kid. And it's so great that there's so much diversity. We're not done. We're not finished. There's got to be more, but we've come a long way in literature, and, and I'm so happy to be a tiny, small part of that experience. Wow. I mean, you've shared a lot, and at the heart of what I love about what you shared is how when we are intentional and deliberate about challenging the tropes, the stereotypes, the, the way we represent archetypes, we actually create something new. We imagine something new and we expand those fixed and static kind of literary tropes, right? And and bring in something new into the space, which, which is what I love. I always think of like Black protest is always avant-garde precisely because it leans into what does it look like to be intentional? What does it look like to take seriously the fact that dreadlocks signifies something of horror that is terrifying, which is a mean stereotype. So when we challenge that, what can we imagine? What else can emerge, right? So I love that. That is really awesome. So my last question for you, Jahan, is what's next for you? What new books are coming? What is the message that you want people to take away this Black History Month in relation to literature as well as representation, especially now that something like critical race theory is under attack in schools. Why is it important that we need this kind of writing? Right. So um, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I could talk to you for hours and hours. I really appreciate it. Upcoming, like I have a lot of things that I have not finished that I've started working on like novels, like long novels, middle grade and young adult novels that I really want to finish. I was asked to write a couple of smaller things and I turned them down because I said, I, I really want to, write a book for like a middle school, a teenage secondary student. And I have two that I've almost finished. I want to get those done in my free time when I'm not working at the consulate and taking care of my family. But I, I want, that's my next goal. I really want to get novels out. I want to reach a lot of young adults through those books as critical race theories under attack. And, you know, people have problem with critical race theory and that could be another podcast episode, but I think that we just have to challenge the norms, you know, and about everything. And we have to know what we've been told. And sometimes we've been told, you know, glossy versions of things. And you can't separate everything. You have to know everything that happened before to, to be able to move on to the future. So I think in this Black History Month, I would say, you know, watch a movie, push yourself out your comfort zone. 12 Years a Slave is tough to watch. Watch it. 
It's a beautiful story. It was written after he came back out of slavery. So he got out of it, but it was 12 years. And some people obviously spent their entire life in slavery, but it is amazing. So I actually need to read that book. I've only seen the um the movie. I did read the book actually, but I, I just okay, there the you go. movie is scary. I just the thought of the movie. It is true. Seeing it in person is is tough. Like I haven't seen George Floyd's murder because I, I just couldn't and I know what happens in it, but people Spoiler alert, anytime I get the link to it, or I just can't watch it because I, I just can't imagine watching someone die that actually really happened like right in front of me. I say just challenge ourselves to find a story we don't know, you know, find some person in black history we don't we don't know about and, and learn about them, read a, read a book about them and watch a movie, push ourselves out of our comfort zone and also think about the other racial groups and different people you meet and, and think about how you can also honor their legacies and learn more about them and Think about how that can shape us and make us better people by knowing where everyone's come from. It's been a pleasure. I need to learn more about South Africa. I mean, I obviously know like a little bit about apartheid because we learned it, but there's so much more to know about South Africa. So while I'm here, maybe that's what I would do for the month of February. I'm going to reach into South African history and all about South Africa and learn a lot more about South Africa. Oh, wow. What a pleasure and what a joy, Jahan. It's been, I, I loved learning more about your book. I'm excited to get them delivered and I am building a children's literature curriculum because I think it's really important that we begin teaching children's literature more broadly. I mean, since encountering that people teach children's literature, I have fallen in love with the idea. And so your books will certainly be part of my syllabi. It has been such a joy learning more about you, learning about Black History Month in this way, and the importance of not just representation, but of articulating the nuances of like slavery and its afterlife of Black history, of resistance, of protests, of bringing the child into that narrative. I think for me, that is the key thing that I take away from this talk, the importance of centering children in the narrative because we often lose them and they right there they write at the heart and what can we learn when we center the child jahan thank you so much for everything and before we end this episode i would like to read a short poem and an excerpt as a tribute to galal al-bahari i'll be reading al-bahari's poem a letter from Torah prison. We saw a country rise from sleep to trample a pharaoh and cleanse the age of the cane and kajal. We saw a country sing. Those were no slave songs, no harbages of doom, rather songs fitting for a new kind of steel. We saw it. We saw a country where no one is oppressed. Galal al-Bahari also wrote a response to accusations that his work is anti-Egypt on May 3rd, 2018, and I would like to read this brief excerpt. Being against the events that are happening in the country does not disgrace me. Each one of us loves their country and each one of us fears for their country. However, each one of us has a personal vision that does not contradict the country's interests. Enough with the labeling, accusations, and false allegations. I'm not a parasite living off my parents' money, a futile person pretending to be what he is not, nor a hero, a brave, or a distinguished person. I am a young man 
trying to make ends meet, build a life and have one day children who know how to be real human beings and who recognize the value of the land. I am like you, all of you, an Egyptian young man who tries to live and build for himself and for the next generation something real and secure that guarantees them a decent life. As we've been speaking today about ordinary people who are agitating for a better future, for a better world, we continue to hold Al-Bahari in our minds. Jahan, will you please read us your tribute to Al-Bahari? He has a quote that I like, and it's, the light doesn't care how tall the fence is. It is not hemmed in by steel bars or officers' uniforms. It cannot be forgotten. I think that as we talk about all of the African Americans that have um, given to America and the world, this light is the same. You know, the light doesn't care and it can't be forgotten. And I hope that this episode and this tribute gives Galal some comfort and we stand by him and we hope that he will be released. Thank you for your excerpt, Jahan. In a video on YouTube, Galal El-Bahari does invite us to not forget him. And in search of some of his words, you will see that a lot of it has already been erased. And I hope these excerpts that we read today is a way of holding him not only in memory, but of inviting presence to that invitation that he not be forgotten and that leaders and agitators and people who fight not be forgotten. Thank you so much, Jahan, for your time and for your work. It is so exciting to know that the children of today and the future of tomorrow will have resources, a rich, nuanced library to draw from, to know themselves, to know the world, and to know what tools they have access to, to build a better future. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been Mandisa Harov in conversation with Jahan Jones-Redgowski for Penn Transatlantic Conversations. Thank you. Thank you to Jahan and Mandisa for your captivating storytelling, nuanced analysis, and deeply moving discussion. Join us again next week for episodes two and three of season three of The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned rices across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.